Matthew 16, 13 through 17, uh, 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say I am? They replied, some say the John of the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what, what about you, he asked. What do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the son, the you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, of son of Jonah, for this was not revealed by you by flesh and blood, but by the Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I give you these keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. All right, good morning, everybody. What a great Mother's Day morning and Sunday morning to gather together, hear from God's Word. So we were in the airport in Israel, in Tel Aviv, and my wife, Laura, was 32 weeks pregnant, and we had just gotten off of two weeks with this big group. It was an awesome trip, and we get up to the counter to get checked in to go back, and as Laura presented her passport, they said, uh, ma'am, you've already checked in. And she said, no, I haven't, I haven't checked in. Uh, they're like, well, we, you've already checked in, so we, we can't let you pass through here. And as I'm standing there next to her, these words in the back of my mind start resonating. They're my mom's words, whose name is also Laura Fakes. This is going to be a problem. This is going to be a problem. And I was like, how could this possibly be a problem? She's like, well, imagine somebody sends a letter and it gets delivered to the wrong place. I was like, nobody sends letters anymore. Nobody even does that. And if it does, we'll just sort it out. So we totally blow it off. A year into marriage, I'm standing there at this gate and I'm thinking, she was right. She was right. So mom, if you're listening, happy Mother's Day. You were right. But anyway, the, the person at the at the kiosk is saying, well, I, the problem is, and so we start to explain this. I think probably what happened was there's two Laura Fakes on this flight, and I think one of them checked in. Can you just check her in for the other one, and then it'll all kind of work out as we go. And he's like, no, can't do that. I've got to have the right passport with the right name with the right person, or we cannot let you go. And I'll be like, well, other people here clearly don't have those standards because somebody already checked in with the wrong stuff. But anyway, so we, we call my mom, we get her back, she has to come all the way back through security because she was blazing the trail ahead, and so we get up to the counter and show the passports, and, and the guy, I, th I think the guy's mind is just blown. Which one of you is Laura, and of course, you know, you look at our last name, Fakes, and he's doing his best, I think he said, which one of you is Laura Felix? Neither of us actually are Laura Felix, but which, which one of you is the real Laura Fakes? But the, but the problem is they both have these claims to be Laura Fakes. And here's what gets really, really weird. They're both Laura Ann Fakes. I mean, you, can't, you couldn't make this up. So, I mean, this guy's mind is blown. We finally just are like, there's two Laura Fakes on the docket. There's two Laura Fakes passports. Let's just check them both in and call it good. And we eventually get back on the plane and uh, we, we get on our way. But... This, this brings up a really interesting question about identity. Just because you say you're somebody 
doesn't mean you're somebody. Just because you claim a name or a title or uh, an accomplishment, that doesn't mean you're that person. Right? And, we, and we get this on a practical level. You can't just show up at the airport and say, I'm so-and-so. It needs to be something that you claim, but it also needs to be something that is true. Right? TSA people, for all the things that we might say they don't get, they get this. It needs to be a confession of who you are, but there needs to be a verification of who you are. You need to present a picture ID so that you can't just say it, we know it. And Christianity is what's called a confessional religion, in that before Christianity, almost every religion in the world, in fact, some people argue every religion in the world before Christianity what was not confessional, they're what's called ritual religions. You become a part of the religion by doing something, by going through an initiation rite, by being born into the right family, by being a descendant of the right person, by going through the right actions. But Jesus comes along, and Tom Holland, who's not a Christian but has one of the best books on the history of Christianity called Dominion, says the radical change that Jesus brought onto the religious scene was... It wasn't about what you did, it wasn't about who you were, it wasn't about the ritual, it wasn't about the initiation rite, it was all about what you believe, what you confess. Or when we say confess, we usually think confessing sin, but a confession in this sense is just whatever you profess to be true, we confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And the revolutionary part of Christianity is, if you believe that, if you live your life that way, if you trust in that, you're a Christian. See, to be a Jew, you, you needed to have been born a Jew, or you needed to have gone through an initiation rite to become a Jew, which is called proselytizing in, in the Jewish faith. You needed to go through this ritual to become a practicing Jew. And what did you do as a Jew? You kept dietary laws, and you got circumcised, and you did all of these things that would make you a Jew. And the radical part of what Jesus is saying is, it's no longer about that. If you confess with your mouth, Paul says, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he is the Son of God, you will be saved. That's what the Christian faith is all about. But, but here's the thing, it's not just confessing that, because a lot of people confess things religiously today, it's that we confess that and it is true, it is true that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the episode in the Gospels this morning that we're looking at in chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus gets clever with the disciples. He asked two very important questions, but two really different questions in this text. If you look at the beginning, Jesus comes into the district of Caesarea Philippi, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Why are they here and why does it matter? But he asks his disciples the first question. Who do they, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? What, what are people saying? Now, to our ears, we, we hear people say like st stuff like this a lot because people care what other people think about them at a huge level. What are the polls saying? What are, what are people saying on social media about who Jesus is? I don't want you to hear that question this way. I want, you to, I want you to hear it. Jesus is not trying to pad his own ego here. He's saying, what are the competing confessions of who the Christ is? 
What, what are people saying? What are the rival versions of this confession? And the disciples answer like good Jewish people. They say that maybe you're like Elijah the prophet. Maybe John the Baptist. Maybe Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Or when this story is told in Luke, he adds one of the prophets who has risen from the dead, who's come back to life. These, these rival confessions tell us something really important about the way that people confess Jesus. These people had been waiting for a Messiah for a couple thousand years. And they had been waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And when the Messiah shows up, they're not quite convinced. See, here's why. When Jesus asks them, who do they say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is from Daniel chapter 7, and it's a title for the Messiah. There's this grand vision of the heavens where the Ancient of Days sits down, and someone who looks like a Son of Man comes, and he receives the kingdom from the Ancient of Days. This is the Son of God. This is the Almighty. This is the Messiah. He says, what do people say about the Son of Man? And they say, you know, People say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or the prophets, but you realize pretty quickly, all these are prophets. So Jeremiah is a prophet, Elijah is a prophet, John the Baptist is the last, and Jesus is the greatest prophet. And all three of these have been prophesied that they would come and be the forerunner of the true Messiah. Right? John the Baptist actually was the forerunner. He was the one who said, prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus even says, Elijah has come again. In Malachi, the very end of your Old Testament, there's a prophecy that Elijah will return to prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus says, Elijah has come, John the Baptist. That's him. So people got that right. Now, for us, we look at this and we say, Jeremiah, why would they pick Jeremiah? He's not even like the best of the major prophets. Isaiah, clearly, is the best of the major prophets. But if you read in the intertestamental literature, which is between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, there's three books called Maccabees, or sometimes four books called Maccabees. And in the Maccabean period, in the second century BC, the Jews throw off the Greek rulers and they actually reinstitute a monarchy for about a generation. And in that period, you have some writings where they claim that Jeremiah is going to come back. And the reason for that is, when Jeremiah's prophesying is when the Babylonians come and destroy the temple. And according to this source, Jeremiah, before the Babylonians get there, goes into the temple, gets the Ark of the Covenant, and takes it and hides it in a cave on Mount Nebo. And this document says that before the Messiah comes, Jeremiah is going to go get the Ark of the Covenant, bring it back out, they're going to reinstitute worship, it's going to go back in the Holy of Holies, and then the Messiah is going to come. So to us, this sounds a little bit odd, but to them, all of these people are people who should come right before the Messiah comes. So Jesus says, that's, that's interesting. What, what these people are doing is they're saying that maybe Jesus isn't quite all he claims to be. Maybe he's, he's almost what he needs to be. Maybe he's the forerunner of someone who will come that is truly greater than he is. On the flip side, they say maybe he's really just a moral teacher. That's what a prophet was in the ancient times, is they were somebody that was an important religious figure. They taught new morality. They called people back to God. But somehow Jesus is short of what he's claiming to be. Now, this sounds kind of odd to us, but 
they've got nothing on what people claim Jesus is today. If you want to do something depressing, go look at polling data on who people say Jesus is today. <laughs> if Jesus came and said, what, who do people say that I am? There's a Barna study that was put out a couple of years ago that looked at the statistics on who people believe Jesus to be today. And they have all these categories, Christians, devout Christians, everybody. I'm just going with everybody. Who does everybody say that Jesus is? 95% of people say that Jesus was a real person, which makes you kind of wonder <laughs> about that 5%. If you, if we have more ancient sources about Jesus than any other historical figure almost combined before the printing press. But 95% are willing to say he's a historical person. Only 87% of millennials, I can say as a millennial, what is going on with the millennials? Just over 50% believe that he was God. More than 50% believe that he sinned. So he is maybe God, probably sinned, most likely a real person, and over 60% say they've made a personal commitment to him. So you look at this data and you're like, why? Why would you commit to him? He's only probably God, he probably sinned, and you're making a commitment to him? There's better people in history to say, I'm going to commit because of these various reasons. Jesus claimed to be something far more than this. So you have people who basically are recreating Jesus in their own image. This is what we're all we all tend to do, is we figure out who we want Jesus to be, and then we confess that he is that. So when I was doing college ministry... I used to go down to MACU, Mid-America Christian University, great college in Oklahoma City. But in their student union, if you go in there, there's this big picture on the wall. I don't know, it's been like six or seven years, maybe they took it down. But there's this big picture on the wall, and it's Jesus, but he's in a suit, a really nice-looking suit with a tie on, and he's shaking hands with this guy in a business deal over the table. <laughs> the students always called him Business Jesus. And every time I walk by there, I kind of chuckle because that, that is the apex of creating Jesus in our own image. What would Jesus be like today? What do we confess him to be? Let's, let's put a picture of him in a suit, making a business deal over a table. But as silly as that is, we all do it. We all have this picture of what we want Jesus to be, and we confess that. What Jesus is doing with the disciples in this story is, he's, like I said, he's not just saying, hey, tell me what other people are saying. He's coaching the disciples. He's, he's discipling the disciples to know the truth about Jesus. See, what Jesus is challenging in this story is, it's not about who we confess Jesus to be unless it's who Jesus says he is. So Jesus has been teaching the disciples since chapter 4, when you get the first kind of block of teaching from Jesus, he's been showing his disciples, teaching his disciples, instructing his disciples on who he is, and now he begins to turn the tables. Notice the second question is no longer, who does everybody else say that Jesus might be? Jesus turns and he says to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say? That I am. Because remember, a confession is all well and good, and, and except when it lines up with reality. See, Jesus, C.S. Lewis probably put this better than anybody has ever put it. He says, I'm trying, this is in mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that certain people say about him. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I'm not willing to accept his claim to be God. He says that is the one thing we cannot say. That is the one thing we cannot confess. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, so British, or he would be a devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. He is Lord. The category of what do people say about him, is he a moral teacher, is he a prophet, is he just a great historical guy, that's a false category because Jesus actually claimed not to just be that. He claimed something so much more. There is only one right answer. Our confession and the truth align when, when Peter opens his mouth to Jesus, the spokesman of the apostles. Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice Jesus Jesus doesn't actually get excited that much in the gospel. As we talked last week, he gets compassionate, he is moved, he is sorrowful, he's overcome with joy once in the gospels. He doesn't get excited that much, but when Peter says this, Jesus gets excited and he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed it to you. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This, this second question is the question that every person has to answer at some point in their life. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do they say he is doesn't cut it? Who do you say that he is? Who do you confess him to be? And does that match up with what's true? We treat religion sometimes like it's kind of a gray area for answers, Right, so when I was in college, I was a math major for the first three years. And math is wonderful because there is one right answer. And you pretty much know if you've got it because you can check your work. So you get to the end of a test. If you got time, you check your work. You've got an answer. It works both directions. You know you have the right answer. Well, after my junior year, I decided I wanted to go to seminary. So I was like, I, I got to learn to read and write. I mean, I have to be able to, you know open a book and make sense of it. So I decided to be a philosophy major. So I get into my first philosophy class and I realize philosophy is not like math. I mean, you can write, apparently, for my classmates, anything you want. <laughs> and it has to be taken with a certain level of validity because you said it. This person said it, you know. So I get in there and I really struggled at first because I'm looking for the right answer. We should all arrive at the right answer. But these professors are looking for maybe like a genuine answer or a thoughtful answer or given the text that we're reading and the rules that they're playing, what, what would be an accurate interpretation of what this person would say? We sometimes put religion in the second category. Well, it's, it's really about the genuineness of your faith. 
It's really how much you believe. And if, and if you're sincere and you came to that in good faith, then how could we say that that's not a valid confession? Or, you know what, it's not about the right answer. It's just a set of good answers about who Jesus is. But Jesus here with Peter is reminding us this isn't something that is so nebulous that we can't arrive at an exact answer. He's reminding us that when we confess that Jesus is the Christ and we're saying this is true, it's like a math problem. It's either right or it's wrong. Jesus is either the Christ or he is nothing. Paul says if our faith in Christ, if, if we put our faith in Christ and he hasn't been risen from the dead, then our faith is futile. It's foolish to trust in a person who says the thing Jesus says, but can't deliver on his promises. He's either the Christ or he is nobody. So Jesus turns this question to Peter because he wants Peter and the disciples to know that they can trust. He wants them to know that they can be saved. He wants them to know that their confession matches what they're about to see Jesus do on the cross. On our podcast, we've been taking questions on Friday about the book of Revelation, which has just been wild. One of the early commentators says the, the most monstrous thing you'll see in Revelation is not the stuff in Revelation. It's the stuff the commentators say about the stuff in Revelation. And I've found that to be true, actually. We got this question, though, because the theme of Revelation is telling us what is it going to be like when God delivers on his promises? What's it going to be like when God brings all of this to pass? And there is some crazy stuff that is going to happen in the end, and it's those who persevere to the end. Those who conquer will be saved. And so we got this really good question of how do I know that I could be saved. If the tribulation is happening and things are going crazy and people are being deceived and there's a beast and all of this stuff, how do I know that I could be saved? How can I be sure that I'm in? And to answer that question, it made me think about what are these gospel writers actually doing? Why record a story of Jesus' life when this was not nearly as common then as it is now. And I went back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, where Mark opens his Gospel. The very first line of the Gospel of Mark is, this is the Gospel. This is the good news, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And in Luke, if you go to the beginning of Luke, he tells us exactly why he wrote this book. He says, inasmuch as people have compiled a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning, eyewitnesses, ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed these things closely, to write an orderly account for you, Theophilus, which means God lover, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. You know, John comes along after the disciples to write his gospel. He's probably the last disciple living. His gospel, the gospel of John and the book of Revelation are probably the last books written in the Bible. So we think that John probably had read at least one of the other gospels. And so he has a reason for writing in addition to what's already out there. And at the end of the gospel of John, he tells us why he decided to write his gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, all of these gospel writers are after the same thing, that you would know how to answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. So as we wrap up, what does it mean to say that Jesus is the Christ? What does it mean to say that he's the Son of God? Well, Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, is a title. Christ is a title. It's not his last name. It's not right, Mary and Joseph Christ. It's, it's Jesus the Christ. It is a title that's given to Jesus, and it's just the Greek translation of the word Messiah in Hebrew. Mashiach in Hebrew means the anointed chosen one of God. It's the one that all the prophets, all the law, all the writings are pointing to saying at one point someone will come who fulfills all the promises of God. These sacrifices we're making right now, the blood of bulls and goats and sheep, these are like IOUs to God over time that stay the penalty for our sin. But one day the Messiah will come. And he will make a sacrifice after which no other sacrifice will ever be needed. He will be perfect. He will be God. He will be, in, in terms of the rulership that he will bring in, it will be like David on steroids. His kingdom will never end. That's the Messiah. And when we confess that Jesus is the Messiah, we mean he is the one solution to our problem. Our problem is sin. Our problem is rebellion against a holy God, and there is one solution to that problem, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah that God sent. It means that he is building one kingdom. One of the most confusing passages in the history of the church is in our text today, and I'm going to spend like no time on it. It's in the end of our passage in chapter 16 where he says, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. God revealed it to you. And I tell you, you are Peter. Now, now, Peter, the word Petra means rock. So there's a little play on words here. So his name is like Rocky, uh, what we would say. Rocky, I am going to build my church on this rock. That's what Jesus is saying. So th this is why it's been confusing. Does it mean Peter? I'm going to build my church on Peter? Or I'm going to build my church on this confession that you have made. So for a million reasons that I'm not going to get into this morning, we believe that it's the confession that saves you. He confesses this. It's, it's a high point in the gospel. You're the Christ. He says, that's it. And that's what I'm going to build my church on. I am going to bring people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, that if they will confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, they're in. They're in my family. No matter what they've done, where they came from, I'm going to build my church. And you know what? Even the gates of hell cannot prevail against that confession. This is the only time in the Gospels where we see the word church, the word ecclesia, which just means gathering. And he says, the gathering of people that I'm building, it is going to be attacked constantly by the powers of death. And it, it might look like for a while the powers of death are going to win. But Peter, you have my word that my church is never going to fail. Little C churches can fail. Individual churches can fail and have failed. 
the church will never fail. The church that Jesus is building, his bride that he is perfecting for the moment when we have the wedding supper of the Lamb, that church, it will never, ever fail, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Jesus, it says in the first part of this, he took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. This is the furthest north Jesus ever goes in his earthly life. It is totally out of the way. It's not on the way to anywhere. He takes his disciples all the way up. It's about 25 miles northwest of the Galilee. And when you get to Caesarea Philippi, it's this ancient town that was built as a shrine to the god Pan, the Greek god Pan. And the reason they built this shrine there is because up north of the city, there's a giant cave, and people at that time believed that this cave was one of the entrances to hell, to Hades, which they the word here. They believed this was a gate to the underworld, and so they built all these shrines around it. There's a giant temple ruin that's in this area because people would come to worship the powers of death. Or if you're an ancient person, you realize, what's the only thing undefeated? Death. That's it. Every kingdom rises and falls. Every ruler gets assassinated or dies or taken over by somebody else. But death is undefeated. And Jesus, with his back to this giant, gaping, dark cave to death, says, you know what, guys? Even death itself is not going to be prevailing against my kingdom. It's like the most vivid lesson that Jesus could teach his disciples before he shortly goes to the cross and dies and is buried in a cave, an entrance to hell, to the underworld, and three days later, he rises from the dead. Death won't prevail against the kingdom of God. And because of that, we can say he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, he is building the church, he is reigning, he is presiding over a world where forgiveness and grace and humility and freedom and love are the currency of the real world. Because the kingdom of God is the truest reality in the universe. Blessed are you, Peter. Blessed are you when you make this confession. It's not just the one way to solve our problem. It's not just the one true kingdom. It is the one way to be blessed. It's to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Son of God. So this morning, I, I want to get out of the way of this text and leave the burden of this text with you. Jesus isn't just asking this to Peter. He's not just saying this in Matthew's recording it like it's a historical fact. Matthew is recording this because every disciple of Jesus has to answer this question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus in your life? Is your confession something that you claim? And is it something that is true? And we see Peter say for all of us that have trusted in Christ, he is the Messiah. He is the answer. He is the son of the living God. What do you say? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this account. We we thank you that we're not left to wonder or to piece through everything to try and figure out what do we need to do, who do we need to be, what changes do we need to make. All we have to do is come and confess 
that you sent your son to die to pay for our sins, to come back into relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our confession this morning, that that is true, that it it would pervade our life and you would be able to look at us and say, those people serve a wonderful Savior. Those people are in the family of God. Father, help us to live like our confession is true, that for all the other confessions, for all the ways that we're tempted to recreate Jesus in our image, Father, we stick to what your word tells us. Your promises are true. Your love really does conquer death. It does conquer our sin. So, Father, we come to you now before we come to your table, trusting in this confession that we are forgiven, we are restored, we are empowered, we are put on a mission. We are reunited, redeemed. We have been welcomed back into your presence. And now we come to your table to feast with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand to continue in worship, the first way we respond.